0: But last week, um, as I was preparing my sermon for last week, I was looking at Luke chapter 24. And as you remember, we, we talked about uh, the, the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus on the day of the resurrection of Jesus and how Jesus met them on the road and that they were, per- they were kept from recognizing him until he broke the bread. And then they went back and they told the other disciples, and they found that the other disciples were all excited because Jesus had appeared to Peter. And then, uh, anyway. And I even showed you a little video about all of that. Um, and if you go back to, not, we don't need to go back to it this morning. But if you were to go back and look at Luke chapter 24. You would see that very early in the morning on the day of the resurrection. There were a group of women who had gathered uh, all of the spices necessary and the ointments necessary to embalm Jesus basically to prepare him for his burial because they weren't able to do that on the day of his crucifixion because it was almost time for the sabbath to begin and so um, so we have this testimony from the early day early hour, earliest hour of the resu- day of resurrection that Jesus indeed resurrected we have the testimony of the two angels that were the, 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 the men dressed in shining garments, it says, were, that were in the tomb. We have the testimony of the women. Uh, if you look at the Gospel of John, you see the testimony of uh, Mary Magdalene who thought. That Jesus the resurrection Jesus, was the gardener, and she turned to him and said if, if you 've taken his body, please tell me where it's at and it. i 'll come and get him and then he re- reeled himself to her. Um, <clears throat> we have the testimony of the two men, two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus we have the testimony of Peter, we have the testimony of the uh, of the apostles we have the testimony of Thomas, if you remember that Jesus in John chapter twenty. Uh, appears to the disciples. They're in a locked room, and he says to Thomas, don't be a doubter anymore. Believe, put your hands into the holes in my arms and into my side, and uh, bless he it. He specifically said, blessed are the people who will believe in me even though they have never seen me. Now, so that means that each one of us who sit here, who named Jesus Christ as our Savior, who believe that he was indeed crucified, died, and resurrected. We are even more blessed than Thomas the apostle who saw him face to face. But there is this niggling thing about this idea of resurrection. If you were to go into the, 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 the list of people looking, go into the scriptures looking for the list of people who testified about Jesus' resurrection, you would, you, you could do what i just did you know jump around to the different gospel accounts or you could just turn to the 15th chapter of the first of first corinthians where paul lists there in the very first verses of first corinthians chapter 15 all of the people who saw jesus as uh, in his resurrected body paul even says that there were 500 people present at one time who saw jesus In his resurrected body. Paul even says, some of those 500 have since died, but most of those 500 are still alive. So go ask them if you need to. They are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. So that got me thinking, when did you write this, Paul? This is 1 Corinthians, when was it written? So I did a little bit of research And I found that the best timeline that they can identify that Corinthians was written um, was somewhere around 55, 56, 57, 58 AD. Um, As no later than 58, no earlier than 55. When did Jesus die? Around year 33. And again, we don't have an exact date. So if it's around 33 that Jesus died and then was resurrected. And it was around no later than A.D. 58. 58 minus 33 is 25. So sometime immediately after Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension, which took place on Pentecost, which was 40-some days after his resurrection... 500 plus people saw Jesus, and now 25 years later, there's a question about resurrection, whether it's even possible. If we had the time, it's 51 verses long, we're not going to read chapter 15, but if we had the time this morning to read all the way through chapter 15, we would see it was a significant issue. There is one verse, though, that I want us to focus on, because this is one that I used to, I used to stump our uh, teenagers with when we had uh, God Squad and then when we had uh, our youth group. If you'll turn to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 14, it says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If you have the New International Virgin Version, it says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and so is your faith. It's just an in-your-face statement. But it's an in-your-face statement that makes you think. Remember I said at the beginning of our service, we're gonna read the Nicene Creed. In less than, tw- less than two and a half decades after the time of Christ's resurrection, there was question about whether or not there was indeed a resurrection. 300 years more and it literally came to the point where they had to call all of the leaders of the Christian church together to put together a statement of faith so that there could be a definitive this is what we believe because there was so much stuff going on. But what Paul says under the the authority and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God is if there was no resurrection we're wasting our time. So yes, it's important to believe that Jesus was born in a stable. Yes, it's important to believe that Jesus lived for 30 plus years on this earth. Yes, it's important to believe that he taught all of the things that he taught and he did all of the miracles that he did. If you read at the tail end of John chapter, I believe it's chapter 20, and then again at at the end of chapter 21 in the Gospel of John, it says, all of these things that I have written in my Gospel are written so that you will believe, so that you will know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, But if Jesus never truly resurrected, it's all a waste of time. Because if all he was was a good prophet, if all he was was a good preacher and teacher, if all he was was a good man, but his bones ended up rotting in a grave somewhere, he's no different from any one of us as far as power as far as true healing and restoration power, as far as correcting that which happened, that breaking that happened in during the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. So, the resurrection, it can be said, is probably, if not one, I mean, definitely one of, but if not, it might very well be the primary belief that we have as Christians. To the full foundation of our faith. So the question this morning, and I've now spent eight and a half minutes just talking about the fact that the resurrection is a powerfully important tenet of our faith. But what do you actually understand and believe about what resurrection is? And I'm not going to ask for you to give information. We're just going to talk about some. I'm going to share some things. You can write notes and you can do some Bible study later. And we can even talk afterwards. Um, But specifically, what happened? Jesus' human body died. Ceased to breathe. The heart stopped. Brain activity ceased. He was removed from the cross. His body was wrapped in linen with spices, according to the Gospels. Nicodemus and John, excuse me, Joseph, Joseph carried the body of Jesus to this tomb and placed it there expediently because the Sabbath was coming. And then, three days later, or on the third day, when they opened the tomb or went to the open tomb, they discovered the body was gone. And they were perplexed, confused, upset. It wasn't until they actually saw the resurrected body of Christ that they actually were able to believe that the resurrection took place. So these 500 plus people believed in the resurrection. But Jesus said, it is even more blessed Those who come after you are more blessed than you because they will be believing without actually seeing. Paul in 1 Corinthians said, I passed on to you that which was given to me. Word of mouth, handed off, my understanding, my faith, my belief system communicated to you and you received it. That's how the gospel is transmitted. That's how belief is transmitted. That's how, ultimately, salvific faith is transmitted. It's not through a physical manifestation of the resurrected body of Christ. We just believe because we receive that truth from some other human being who believes. There are very few people whose testimony was, well, I just never had anybody in my whole life ever tell me about Christ. I just picked up the Bible one day and started reading it and came to faith. Most people say they came to faith because someone else told them about their faith. But what is it that you believe? Now, we see in the Gospel of John, and I believe in Luke 24, (coughs) that Jesus appeared to the disciples who were in a locked room. It says the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. So the disciples were in this locked room and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. There was no understanding that he was knocking on the door outside and somebody opened the door and went, oh, Jesus! They literally, he just appears among them and his words are, peace be with you. And their response is not, Oh, Jesus! Their response is, Oh my God! Literally. Because they think it's a ghost. They think they're seeing some apparition. And so what does Jesus do to prove that he's not a ghost? He says, You guys got anything to eat? And... In Luke, if you look at the footnote, it says they gave him fish and a piece of honeycomb. In John, it simply says they gave him a piece of fish and he ate it in their presence, proving to them that he was not a ghost, but that he was, in the words of the gospel, flesh and bone. Now, in our words, we would say flesh and blood, but in that particular culture, they said flesh and bone, it's the same thing. They weren't saying he didn't have blood. They were saying that he was real, that his body was physical. But there was something different about his body because he was able to come into a room that had a locked door. So we're not told what that difference is. We're simply told he had that ability. (coughs) We're also told that they didn't recognize him at first. The guy's on the road to Emmaus. Um, If you look in, I think it's Mark, the last chapter of Mark 16 or maybe it's 15, it says that Jesus appeared to two people on the road to Emmaus in a different form. And what it's saying is, there was something different about him, and for that reason, they didn't recognize him when they first saw him. However, he still had the marks from the nails. He still had the mark from the sword or the spear that pierced him. How do we know that? Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus said to him, to Thomas, put your hand in the marks. And stop disbelieving and believe. So we know that if nothing else, the scars from his crucifixion remained in his now resurrected body. So we don't know did he change his look. We don't know if his body retained only the scars From the crucifixion, or was he so disfigured from the scourging and the the crown of thorns that his body was just so badly scarred that they couldn't recognize him? We don't. We're not given any of that. What we're simply told is he was physical. He was able to eat food. He could communicate with you audibly and be heard by you, that you could touch him because Mary in the garden fell at his feet and said, Jesus, Rabboni, and grabbed him. And he said, don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Thomas touched him or was at least commanded to touch him. We don't know that Thomas actually did. So, but there was this idea that you could touch the resurrected body. You could see the resurrected body. You could feel the resurrected body. The resurrected body could ingest food. But the resurrected body could also manifest itself through locked doors. That's all we know. That's all we're given. Now, let's back this up. Why was 25 years later, after the resurrection of Christ, why was Paul forced to write an entire 51-verse chapter in his book, in his letter, on this topic. Why was it so important? Well, number one, you need to understand, the Jews, culturally and philosophically, had a different mindset from Greek culture. Jewish culture saw humanity as one entity. A human being was one thing. A physical body that had been given nefesh, the breath of life. So when God created Adam or any other human being, God breathed life into them, and they were now a being, a created human being. Greek culture said that there was a soul, encapsulated or imprisoned within a physical body. And when death occurred in the physical body, their theology or their philosophy was that this immortal soul was now released from its confines of the physical body and now could live on in its state. Now, there was also the idea that in, in Platonic and Socratic, so- Socratic, uh, understanding that the body, anything physical was evil. Was not good. The soul was good. Okay? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so there's the sense of the good soul that's going to live on forever is stuck in this evil nasty, dirty body, but when it's separated, now it can go to be with God because it's good. It's released from the evil. And aside, one of the reasons why in the early days of the Christian faith it was thought that sexual intercourse should only be for procreation was because it was thought through this Greek philosophy that anything physical was evil. So procreation was, I mean, so the the intercourse act was only for creating. It was not for anything else because that was evil. And that's where this mindset came from that's even down to this day. Why some people believe celibacy is the way to go because that's what God wants because otherwise it's you're practicing and participating in evil. You're not being holy. So now you understand why there are certain Christians, certain religious people who feel that celibacy is the, the right way to go because this honors God. Okay, now that's an aside, but that's something that you need to understand for for what does this mean? What is this resurrection and why is it important? Now, um, one of the other things we didn't talk about and we don't have time to talk about is if you look in, I believe it's First uh, Thessalonians, Paul says, again, preaching to people who are Greek thought people, not Hebrew thought people, that um, the word, is it? Is it No, it's Timothy, I think. Where it says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to separate what? Bone, Bone from marrow and... Somebody find it. But at some point, I don't, and unfortunately I don't have it in my notes, so I'm doing this from memory, so at some point, Paul says... That there is the the body, the soul, and the spirit, and that has just messed with people's minds for thousands of years now, because they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought it was just a soul and a spirit and a body. Well, what is this spirit thing? And so there's been people who've tried to describe it. When Renee and I went through a a discipling class almost forty years ago, we were told about a dichotomic trichotomy. And what that is, is that somebody's philosophy or theology of trying to explain how you can have a soul and a spirit and a body and have it all be part of a soul and a body. And and this part of it stays when it dies and this part goes off to God. And it's all trying to to perpetuate this idea of, of, of Greek thought and understanding, not Hebrew thought and understanding. And quite honestly, we're not given any answers in the Bible and we don't know. But you need to understand that there are some people who think that the physical body is evil and shouldn't ever go on. Therefore, why would God in his plan regenerate something that is evil? That doesn't make sense to me. Therefore, there is no resurrection of the body. It's just my soul going on to be with God. And Paul said, no, 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 it's wrong. That's heresy. You're teaching wrong. You need to understand, if there is no resurrection of the body, there is no Christian faith. Okay, so what is it? I don't know. You just have to believe in it. It's really hard. And that's. I was really, as I was in my office this morning, uh, during the Sunday school hour, I was like, God, do you really want me to do this? Because there's no answer. I can't give them a black and white definition to go home with and put on their refrigerator and say, there it is, that's what we believe. What we need to believe and understand is there is no faith if you don't believe in resurrection. The resurrection is physical, body, Able to eat. Able to touch. Able to see. Able to ascend to the Father. How? Nobody's told me. The Bible doesn't give us that. We just know that it is. That's all we know. We also know that Jesus said... Excuse me, not Jesus. That Paul said Jesus was the first fruit. He was the first one who would be raised from the dead. He said all of us eventually will be raised from the dead. At some point in his teaching, and again, I'm sorry, I don't have it written down, so I can't give you the reference. He said, we shall all in the twinkling of an eye be changed and transformed. Out of this mortal body into the immortal body. Hallelujah. Okay? It is not our spirits going to be with God. It is indeed our resurrected body and spirit and soul going to be with God. Does that mean that you're going to be five foot four and two hundred pounds when you go to heaven? I haven't a clue. Are we all cookie cutter and look exactly the same? I haven't a clue. None of that is given to me. Not that I've ever found in the scriptures. What I know is we will all be changed. What I know is that Jesus was the first among many. What I know is that it is a physical form. What I know is that it can go to be with the Father. And what I know is that if there is no resurrection, our faith is futile. That's all I know. The rest is for you to ponder on and chew on, pray about, and ask God to give better understanding now that I've thrown this huge, huge wrench into all of your monkey works. It's a challenge. But the question and the reason for this is Someday somebody's going to ask you for the answer for the the reason for the hope that is lies within you. And you're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that you have to be ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect for the hope that lies within you. And when they say, How in the world can you believe that the body is going to be resurrected? You better have an answer. Because if you don't, why do you even say you believe? If you haven't thought through your faith. If you can't... Because literally, we, I would say 99.5% of us, all our testimony is, I came to faith because someone told me. Okay? And if indeed that is your testimony... I came to faith because somebody told me. How do you know what they told you was right? If you are basing your entire belief system on the word of your mama and your papa, and your mama and your papa were heretics because they never read the Bible, they just preached what they were taught, then you got a problem. If you go into the book of Acts, you will see where where Paul is preaching to a group of people called the Bereans. B-E-R-E-A-N-S. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says, the Bereans were the most honorable of all, because after they listened to the sermon, they went home and they searched the scriptures for themselves to make sure what the preacher was saying was right. So, as a Christian, it is your responsibility, A, to know what you believe... And B, be able to give the reason for it. And if you can't, you're a fool. Forgive me for saying it, but you are. Because if you're basing your entire eternal destiny on the word of another human being, that's kind of scary. You go to the word of God. What does the word of God say? What does Christian... Experience say? What does Christian tradition say? And what does reason say? Those four things: scripture, experience, tradition, reason. Think of it like a, a milking stool. Okay, the base is the scripture, but the three supports underneath it are reason, experience, tradition. What do other Christians say is true? What does my experience say is true, and what does my God-given reason say is true, all based on the Word of God? Not what mama taught me, or what my Sunday school teacher taught me, or what I heard in a really moving song on K-Love taught me. Hey. hey. I'm just saying. It's my job to meddle, it's your job to confront after you've done your homework. So next week, you can come back to me and say, hey, I did my research in here. I'll show you. Caleb is good. Okay? So I've given you a lot to chew on. Come back next week and talk about what you truly believe and why. And give me a reason for the hope that lies within you. Let's pray.